Well, as Blaine said and <clears throat> AC shared last week, if you're praying for us during the leadership retreat, just want to thank you for your prayers. I think it was one of our, our best leadership retreats as far as just the amount of things we were able to talk about. We spent a lot of time just in prayer for you and prayer for our church and prayer for the Lord's will to be done in the life of our church and just left there so encouraged by uh, what God is doing. It's, I've joked with some of you that it's kind of ironic that we call it the leadership retreat because it's pretty much anything but retreatful <laughs> because it is exhausting. Uh, we spend hours and hours and hours uh, in a row talking about our church and praying and reading scripture and reading uh, books and documents that have been written, articles, sometimes we listen to podcasts, just all that we can get our hands on in order to be better as leaders and and fulfill that which what God has called us to. And so uh, it was just a really encouraging time, and I'm really excited for our member meeting here at the end of the month to just be able to share uh, what the Lord is doing, and there's so much to look back on this year and just be so incredibly thankful for what God has been doing in our church. So I'm looking forward to that time. Um, also, just want to reiterate that if you're interested in going to the ACBC conference in Bozeman, please let me know as soon as possible because I need to be booking rooms here in the next week or so and in order to, to deal with the lodging fiasco at Bozeman. <laughs> so please uh, let me know about that. All right, uh, we are now to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, one of my favorite chapters in the book of John. Uh, when I started John, John 11 loomed on the horizon like a glorious sunset that I couldn't wait to get to. <clears throat> it, it is John's crescendo on the life of Jesus. It, it really is. This is the final miracle that John will record of Jesus' Jesus's earthly ministry leading up to the cross, and it is really an exclamation point on who Jesus is and that he is our deliverer in everything. But before we get into John 11, I want us to go backwards to the book of Exodus. It's been a blessing to have over 30 of you involved with reading through the Bible in a year. I'm thrilled. The last time we did that, I think there was eight and this year, there's over 30. There's like 32 or 33 of you. So praise the Lord for that. Keep pressing on. Stay the course. Uh, but if you're on track with us, you would have just finished the deliverance of God's people from Egypt, <clears throat> known as the Exodus. Now, the book of Exodus begins with these ominous words. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look. The people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. What then began, what then started out here is a harsh and cruel and persecuted enslavement that's purposeful of God's people. And Israel cries out in agony for relief. Now imagine you are an Israelite in those days. It's so easy to just read through scriptures like this and not pause and, and immerse yourself there. But imagine that you are an Israelite in these days. And you remember that God had promised the land of Canaan, a good and rich and fertile land. But that was 400 years ago. 400 years. Our nation isn't 400 years old. And they're wondering 
What is God doing? What is God doing? You're a slave in Egypt. Your life does not consist of weekend recreating, comfortable homes, and open evening schedules for Netflix binging. No, your life is dawn till dark slavery, working under the whip, terrible conditions. You cry out to God night after night after night as you collapse on your bed, physically exhausted, physically beat up, your body aching, burned from the sun. You cry out to God, and with tears you beg God for relief, the relief that you are experiencing of of your newborn sons being taken and killed. Watching your spouse go to bed each night in a pool of tears. And yet night after night, and week after week, and month after month, and year after year, nothing comes. Nothing comes. Nothing changes. God seems silent. And deliverance does not come. And this goes on for the people of Israel for over 40 years. Now what thoughts, if you were an Israelite then, would be in your head? Where where would you be wrestling? Maybe questions such as these. Does God really love me? Is God really there? Has he forgotten about me? Does God not really know what is good and what is evil? Or does God not have the power to bring it about? What is his plan in this mess? You see, a longing for deliverance is not new. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, there has been a longing for deliverance. And yet this longing for deliverance points to a need of full deliverance because every situation we encounter in life that we want to be delivered from, guess what? Another situation then arises that we want to be delivered from. We essentially move from one exodus to another, to another, to another in our lives. We want to be delivered from acne, then we want to be delivered from knee pain, and then we want to be delivered from cancer, and then we want to be delivered from the pain of loss, and then we're back into diapers again. We want to be delivered from that too. We move from wanting to be delivered to wanting to be delivered to wanting to be delivered to wanting to be delivered. And we know deep down it points to the need for a deeper deliverance. So turn to John 11 with me and and let's begin this incredible chapter. I don't know how long it's going to take us to get through this, three or four weeks. There's so much in here for us to think about and consider. We're going to begin in verse 1. Now I'm going to read through verse 16, which is our text this morning, but then I'm, I'm going to jump ahead to verse 38. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death but for the glory of God, 
that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. Now jump ahead with me to verse 38. Then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. This is Lazarus' tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench. He's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Now as we saw last week, and I was grateful for Simeon preaching for me last week, we saw Jesus He has gone up north of Jerusalem and then over the Jordan River to the east, and he is there ministering, and he is having a fruitful ministry there. We read, for many believe in him there. But the timeline of God marches on, and the cross is looming large. And so this chapter opens with telling us a certain man is sick brings us to our first point this morning, have perspective of God's glory. Have perspective of God's glory. Lazarus of Bethany is sick. Now Bethany was two miles from Jerusalem and about a day's travel from where Jesus is ministering at this point. We're also introduced to two other characters that we have not yet seen in John, Mary, and Martha. They show up elsewhere in the Gospels. Mary, we know as the one who anoints Jesus' feet, which we'll see in John chapter 12, right before the crucifixion. Martha is often set up as an example, as one not to follow, because of the story in Luke 10 where she's distracted by serving while Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. But as we're going to see later on in this chapter, I think that's an unfair judgment on Martha's part, because the issue isn't her serving, the issue is her attitude in it. Now, Lazarus and 
Martha and Mary are some rare people in the Gospels. They are rare friends of Jesus. In fact, there is more said about their friendship than anyone else in the Gospels. It would seem their home is perhaps the only resting place Jesus has where he can go and, so to speak, kick back his feet and rest. It seems his home was a place where Jesus could just go and hang out and not have to to worry of the fights and the arguments and the teachings and the pressing in that encountered his ministry. These were close friends of Jesus who seemed to value Jesus for who he was. There are no other people in the Gospels with whom Jesus seems to be at ease with as these three. There is something deeply special about their relationship. I mean, just consider this. Of all the homes Jesus could have been in before he went to the cross, it was this home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus where he was before he went to the cross. Consequently, when Lazarus becomes sick and became apparent he wasn't going to recover, Martha and Mary sent to Jesus. And and their message here is significant. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. These are words that reflect the deep friendship that they have with Jesus as well as their understanding as to who he is. Notice that they state, he whom you love. They do not appeal to Lazarus' love for Jesus. They do not appeal to their love for Jesus. They appeal to Jesus' love for Lazarus because that is far better grounds to base something on. We saw that last week, two weeks ago, I mean. That we need to have greater confidence in His love for us than our love for Him and a better confidence in His grip on us rather than our grip on Him. It's significant. These sisters knew Jesus loved them. And they felt and knew His love. But second thing we need to notice here. They did not dare give Jesus instructions as to what he should do. This is fascinating. They had enough faith in Jesus to simply inform him of the situation without feeling the need to advise him into how to proceed. They trusted him to act as he saw fit. Now, as we'll see later in the chapter... They were disappointed and confused with how Jesus responded. They had faith when they wrote this message, when they sent this message, but they did not realize where their faith was falling short. And yet, their message to Jesus here should stand as an example for us. Because when when trouble struck, what did they do? They cried out to Jesus for help. And so should we. When trouble strikes, we should call out to Jesus for help. Our first response, so often in trouble, is to run around and try to fix it. And then when we realize, I'm getting nowhere, then we stop and call out to Jesus. After we've exhausted ourselves trying to solve the problem. And then, so often, we tend to cry out to God, help but then what do we do 
We tell him how we want him to solve the problem. God, I want you to handle it this way. And I want you to do this. And I want this to go away and I want this to come. And then we get upset when God doesn't solve it our way. And what we need to learn here is to cry out to God, trusting in Him more than we trust our solutions. Because so often, I fear that's what we do. We trust our solutions. But we need to trust God with His solutions for us. Now, there's another thing we need to see here before we leave these couple verses. And that's this. Being a dear friend of Jesus does not mean escaping from a fallen world. It doesn't. In verse 3, the sisters reference Jesus' love for Lazarus. In verse 5, Jesus speaks of his love for, or, or I'm sorry, Jesus' love for all three of them is stated. Then in verse 11, Jesus calls Lazarus our friend. But being this close to, suffer, to Jesus doesn't mean an exemption from suffering. In fact, as we'll see, Lazarus and and Martha and Mary experience deep, deep sorrow. They experience deep suffering. And as we'll see later on, even persecution. They're not immune from living in a fallen world simply because they are close to Jesus. And we need to remember that. Because I think we kind of subtly believe that, that we should be exempt from all of these things. Because we love the Lord. But that's just not the case. Charles Spurgeon said this. Now this is back in his day. The the things he speaks of, you'll, you'll see it. The love of Jesus does not separate us from the common necessities and infirmities of human life. Men of God are still men. The covenant of grace is not a charter of exemption from consumption or rheumatism or asthma. Those might not be the things that are prominent in our lives. They were in his In his day, in other words, what he's saying, suffering for the Christian, normal. And we look at it as abnormal, run. So how does Jesus respond? Well, look at verse 4. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Here we're given perspective in this suffering. This sickness, Jesus said, will not lead to death. This is a significant statement, especially considering that Lazarus has likely already died before the message even got to Jesus. And yet, later on, Jesus will tell the disciples, Lazarus is dead. But here he says, this will not lead to death. It won't lead to death. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. There is a clue here as to what Jesus is going to do. And yet, as we will see, Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave is going to point ahead to his resurrection from the grave and the resurrection of all believers from the grave. There's clues of this scattered all through this dialogue. Points to death being defeated. Thus, for those who are found in Christ, for those who trust in Christ, for those who are children of God, 
nothing in their lives will result and finalize in death. Nothing. What Jesus says of Lazarus here is, is true for me, it's true for you, and it's true for all who are the children of God, all who trust in Christ, and all who follow Him. This sickness, this will not lead to death. And consequently, this has to be our our cry in everything we encounter. This will not lead to death. It will not lead to death. This health problem will not lead to death. This financial problem will not lead to death. This marital struggle will not lead to death. This loss will not lead to death. This trial will not lead to death. The sufferings of this life will not culminate in death, but eternal life with Jesus. We will be raised from the physical grave to physical eternal life with Jesus. This is why Paul would would write an entire chapter on these things and close this chapter with these words, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15. And yet, the perspective Jesus gives goes deeper even than that, that this will not lead to death. Notice what he says. Verse 4, But for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This means more than God being glorified, but rather who God is being revealed, His glory being revealed. So it means more than just this. God's going to be glorified in this situation. That's true, but it means even more that God's glory will be revealed. It will be shown to be majestic and wonderful and powerful. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the grave. And this incredible miracle will reveal more of God. More of His majesty, more of His power, more of His goodness, everything about God. He will be shown to be sovereign over the grave. And Jesus will be shown to have authority over the dead. And Jesus here, I think, is wanting us to see how glorious is God. How glorious is He? He's glorious over the grave. Not even death stands in his way. And yet we know here that if the resurrection of Lazarus is going to reveal the glory of God, how much more so the coming resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord and all who trust in him that follow. Death is no threat whatsoever to God Almighty. He is sovereign over the grave. Now notice verse 5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now this is significant. The love of Jesus is applied specifically to each one of them. 
doesn't just say Jesus loved the family or Jesus loved these ones or Jesus loved these people. No, he loved them individually, each one of them. This is very significant to note here. The love of Jesus for each one of these people fills the air around this story. It's not central to the story, but it fills the air around it. Thus, verse 6 is very jarring to us if we are immersing ourselves in the story here. We expect to read, now Jesus loved Martha, and he loved Mary, and he loved Lazarus, and when he heard Lazarus was sick, he caught the first flight into Bethany. That's what we expect, right? But no, it says this, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days where he was. Jesus loved them individually, compassionately, emphatically, and therefore he stayed. The language is a therefore. It was better for them if he stayed. Now, if we hadn't just read two things, this would, be, this would seem cold. This would seem pointless. But we just read about the glory of God being revealed and that Jesus loved them. And so those things together give incredible perspective to this suffering and by implication, all suffering. In every ounce of suffering of the people of God, there are two things we know going on. The glory of God to be revealed and the love of God for His people in the suffering. Both of those things are always present in our suffering. Let's go back to Exodus. There the people of God are in great suffering. Horrible suffering. Agony. For decades. It was at least 40 years before God delivered them from that hardship. And even there, God's love for them was real and it was present. And God was going to reveal His glory through their suffering in the Exodus and through the rest of the Bible. The Exodus will stand as an illustration and a picture of salvation. How we are saved from our sin. We are delivered from our sin. We are rescued from the clutches of Satan by a powerful King, Jesus Christ, who delivers us through it all to save us. And here in John 11, Jesus doesn't immediately go because he loved Lazarus and he loved Martha and he loved Mary. He knew God's glory was going to be revealed through this suffering. Friends, consider this perspective in our own life and in our own suffering. There's been a lot of suffering in our church over the last year. In a lot of different ways. Many of us have suffered for a variety of reasons, whether it's health, relationships, loss, finances. And in this suffering, we have to remember this. 
We are deeply loved by God. And He desires to reveal His glory through our suffering. Or to put it another way, He desires that in our suffering, we would reflect His love and reflect His glory. He desires for our, His Son to be magnified in our lives, in the midst of our suffering. Richard Phillips stated this, he said this, Jesus knows that there are more important things than that we should be delivered from sickness, provided with a good job, or helped out of any number of other trials. There are more important things than these things. These more important things is that God would be glorified in our lives, that, that who God is would be revealed in our lives, that His love for us would be reflected in our lives. So I have to ask you, when, when you suffer, or myself, when I suffer, what's more apparent, your suffering or who God is? What's more apparent in your suffering? Your suffering or who God is? A good friend of mine has been suffering for the last couple of years. He's an elder in the church that I came from in, in California. He's gone through cancer, which is now in remission, and one of his kidneys recently stopped working, and the other one is barely functioning, and he has to wear a bag on his side where the kidney drains into, and he's battling continual pain. And yet when I talk to him, I have to really push and I really have to dig to find out how is he really doing physically I talked to him a few weeks ago and he said this I don't want to be known for my health problems or my physical suffering he said I want to be known as a man who loves Jesus and lives for him I was so convicted and encouraged when I heard those words Friends, what do you want to be known for? Or let me ask you this. What are you more known for? Are you more eager for people to know of your suffering or know of your Savior? Are you more likely to tell people about the hardship going on in your life or are you more likely to tell people about what Jesus is doing in your life? What more dominates your conversations with other people? The trial that you're dealing with or the Jesus who's shepherding you through the trial? See, in this text, there is, there is real grief and there is real suffering. And, and we can read this text and just be like, this is so cool, Lazarus is going to raise from the grave. But do you stop and see the suffering here and the heartache and the grief? And we can imagine just on so many levels that the disciples hearing that their dearest friend Lazarus is sick. And as they're ministering over there, in the back of their minds is Lazarus. Is he going to make it? Or is he going to die? And we can imagine them continually asking Jesus, any updates on Lazarus? Have you heard how he's doing? Has God revealed to you how he's doing? We can imagine Martha and Mary, 
the message is gone, and, and they keep anxiously going to the window and going to the door and looking out, is Jesus coming yet? And we can picture Martha's voice from the back of the house, any sign of Jesus yet? We can picture the sorrow and the grief for these two women as Lazarus breathes his last. Their tears as they wrap their dear brother in burial clothes and fear that they experience of the unknown now that their support is gone. The broken hearts they carried within them in them as they led the burial procession to the grave. And the finality of death as the stone crunched into place, sealing the body of Lazarus and bringing a definitive finality to what had just happened. Jesus is not unaware of any of this, nor is he indifferent to it. And yet Jesus responds so differently than us. He's not stoically saying here, hey guys, no big deal. No big deal. This is for the glory of God. God's sovereign. I'll get there when I get there. At the same time, he's not Debbie Downer. When everybody's asking what's going on, he's like, oh, this is horrible, guys. I'm just not sure what's going to happen with Lazarus. It's all I can think about. I'm just consumed. I think everything in Jesus wanted to rush to Martha and Mary. And at the same time, he says these shocking words later on, I am glad I wasn't there. There is joy in Jesus in this suffering. It's going to reveal the glory of God. Jesus knows what he's going to do. And he knows it's going to be an explosion of God's glory. It will reveal the glory of God in a, in a way his friends had never seen before and could never have experienced unless they had gone through this trial. And Jesus knows what he's going to do with all of it. It's going to be glorious. And so he says, I'm glad. I'm glad. Well, let's look at verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. So the first perspective we need is the glory of God. The second is this, our faith growing. These are the two things that dominate this chapter. It's been two days since Jesus received the message. 
And then he finally tells the disciples, it's time to go to Judea. Now, this interchange, if we can kind of pull back from the grief and sorrow, this interchange is really pretty humorous. It's quite funny, actually. They, though they're grieving for Lazarus, apparently they're relieved when Jesus decides not to go to Judea. We need to understand Judea was very, very dangerous for Jesus right now. And it was dangerous for them. It was not a safe place to go. And so they think they've dodged a bullet here. <laughs> and then when Jesus says, let's go to Judea, they pipe up and say, uh, Rabbi, um, the last time we were there, you may remember this, I don't know, maybe you forgot, they threw rocks at us. And you want to go back? Well, Jesus, that, that's a good option. That's a good option. Let's table that one, and let's maybe explore some other options that we could do as well. Perhaps that's how the conversation went. We can almost expect the disciples wanting to hear Jesus say at this point, yeah, that's true, guys. That's a great point. Let's, let's back up a little bit. Let's reevaluate and let's consider some things. Or, or at least the disciples were probably hoping to hear from Jesus. Guys, here's a detailed plan. This is what we're going to do. We're sneaking in the night. No one will ever know we're there. Before it's light, we'll be, we'll be back out of there. It'll be great. You'll be safe. Don't worry. And instead... They hear Jesus say, are there not 12 hours in a day? Now, let's be honest. The first time you read that, you're probably like, oh, yeah, got it. Yeah, that makes total sense. I understand now. That, that, the, the disciples should be at total peace. There's 12 hours in a day. Got it. No, you're probably confused when you read that at first. And we can expect the disciples are as well. We can almost imagine one of them perhaps getting snippy with Jesus. Yeah, Jesus, there's 12 hours in a day. That's plenty of hours to throw rocks. It's not going to be a problem for them. Jesus' statement here doesn't clear up the issue for them. Now, it seems there's two levels here by which we need to understand this. First, there's 12 hours in the day is a common statement then for how long a day was. So that, would, that needs to be an understanding. But what Jesus, I think, is saying here is there's, there's 12 hours in age, just like there's so many years in a life. And he's saying, I've only got 12 hours of my life. And that is nearing to an end. And I need to be about my father's work. The day of Jesus' earthly life is almost over. But there's still daylight left to work. So that's the first level I think we need to understand that. The second level is this. The disciples will be with him, the light of the world, and if they are with him, they will be safe. He will protect them. Nothing can happen apart from his sovereign plan. And therefore, they should walk with him and be about kingdom work. Because if they walk without him and not be about kingdom work, they will, as he says, stumble. They will stumble. And so this compels us to ask the question of ourselves, what are we doing with the life that God has given us? Are we using the, the one life, the 12 hours we have, for the glory of God and the building of His kingdom? 
Or is our life marked more by the building of our own kingdom? What are we more consumed with in our life? Our desires for us or God's desires for us? If you were going to die tomorrow, would you be able to look back on your life right now and say, I didn't waste it? I didn't waste it. Because like Jesus, we have but 12 hours. There is a day appointed for us to die. And if we walk with him, we will see how we are to live. Now after Jesus says this, we can, we can just about picture the confused and contorted faces looking back at Jesus. They didn't understand. That's why he clarifies, verse 11, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Comedian Ken Davis humorously describes the hypothetical scene here, the conversation happening with, with Jesus and the disciples as they're maybe even sitting around in a circle talking here about this situation. And, and when Jesus says that he sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up, maybe, maybe a hand shot up one of the disciples. And, and maybe one of the disciples said, you know, Jesus, I, uh, I, I'm sorry to kind of speak again and, and to maybe contradict or to maybe give a, a different option, but, but here's another thought. If, if Lazarus is sleeping, maybe we should let him sleep. Because after all, sleeping is good when you're sick. And so maybe just let him sleep and wake up on his own. Or, or Jesus, here's a better option. Yet Mary and Martha are already there. If Lazarus needs to be woken up, let them wake him up. Why should we have to go there? Because Jesus, the rocks hurt. Now, Jesus realizes they're not grasping the situation. And therefore, he states plainly, at the end of verse 14, Lazarus is dead. Now, we have to remember the disciples didn't know this. Jesus knew it. Disciples didn't know this. This would have been a shocking blow. These are not men who know how the story is going to end. I started our reading by going to the end because I think we need to see the end to understand what's going on here. Disciples didn't have that, that luxury. They don't know how it's going to end. One of their only allies, closest friends in ministry, is dead. You can just imagine their, their faces being crestfallen and, and their eyes welling with tears. Not Lazarus. Why? Why now? And Jesus then says something else that's just as shocking as verse 6, verse 15. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. And so what we see here is another perspective in suffering, the growth of faith. There is suffering we go through because we need it so our faith will grow. 
There is growth that we will see here in the faith of Martha and Mary and Lazarus and the disciples. Through this suffering, they are going to grow in their understanding of who God is and who Jesus is and why he came. Had Jesus rushed off and gotten there before Lazarus died, they would have seen him heal a man once again, something they had seen before. They already had certain parameters of what Jesus could do. And Jesus is going to push outside of those parameters and expand those parameters for them. Now, we do need to recognize Jesus has raised the dead before Lazarus. Lazarus is not the first person Jesus raised from the dead. But he's the first person that he's going to raise from the dead that was close to them. And friends, that makes all the difference. It's one thing when you hear of, a, of uh, some plane that crashes over in Indonesia and three people are killed. It's another thing when a plane crashes at Missoula Airport and three of your coworkers are killed. Jesus is not only going to raise Lazarus, but do so in a profound way that the disciples and Mary and Martha and Lazarus are going to understand more of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And they're going to understand more of Jesus' own death and resurrection. And it's a good argument that that's why Mary anoints Jesus' feet later on in John 12. Because her faith has grown. And so consequently, Jesus says, I'm glad it wasn't there. Because he's excited for them to grow. I don't think this is a vindictive thing. Like we sometimes will say, well, I'm glad you weren't there. I don't think, that's not his tone, I don't think. I think he is genuinely glad. There is joy. Because he's got growth for them that they desperately need. Friends, we need this perspective. That God will use our sufferings to grow our faith. He has designed it to be so. I know we hear James 1 a lot. We often, I think, are numb to it. And some of us, I think, are even irritated by it, possibly. But it is true nonetheless. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I think Jesus in John 11 is genuinely grieving and genuinely joyful. I often tell people, God does not waste an ounce of your suffering. It's not a drop of your suffering that is wasted. He uses it all for his glory and for our growth in faith. And this is true of myself as well. I've had some sufferings and trials in my life over the last several months. And just the last couple weeks, God has grown my faith through it. He showed me more of my pride and more of my self-reliance. And he's grown my faith in more dependence upon him. And in depending more on him, I found more peace and more hope there. I like what Lewis Allen says in, in 
his book. He says this, God will lovingly shake us out of our self-confidence and will use any means to make us look to him and grow in faith. He will shake our self-confidence and we freak out, right? But God will do it to grow us in our faith. And so we need this perspective that God will and wants to grow our faith in suffering. There are hard things we go through. There are deep sufferings that we endure. And we go through them so that we will grow. Because here's the reality. We don't believe Jesus as much as we think we do, and our faith isn't as strong as we think it is. I've often had people in my office, in tears, saying, I thought I had more faith than this. We don't believe Jesus as much as we think. and Our faith isn't as strong as we think it is. But through suffering, faith grows. Just as we see here. Now, when we understand this, it gives us perspective in our suffering. It helps us to stop fighting so hard to escape the suffering and instead grow in the Lord through the suffering. William Temple, commentator from the early 1900s, said this, It's hard to know what one's faith is worth till some severe test comes. I believe in some measure, of that I'm quite sure. But in what measure, I do not know. I pray God to do for me or to me or in me whatever will have the result that I may believe. That is a scary prayer. God, do whatever needs to be done in me and to me so that I will believe more than I do now. So a great question is, what is God doing in your life right now to grow your faith, and do you see it that way? Jesus then states, Another thing that's fascinating at the end of verse 15, nevertheless, let us go to him. Now pause and think about that for a minute. He doesn't say, let us go to Mary and Martha. Let's go to, to Lazarus' house. Let's go to the grave. Let's go to the funeral. No, let's go to Lazarus. <laughs> that's another clue of what he's going to do. He doesn't say, let's go see the body. Let's go see the person. Let's go see Lazarus. He's going to his friend Lazarus because he knows he's going to raise him from the grave. And now, just think about the disciples. It seemed pointless, Jesus, to go wake a man up. It also seems kind of pointless to go see a dead man. Seems like a foolish risk, probably, to them. But Thomas pipes up, let us go also that we may die with him. Now, there's two ways you can understand this. One is that, that Thomas is resolved to engage in a pointless mission. Fine, guys, let's go. We're all going to die anyways. Let's just go with Jesus and we'll die with him instead of apart from him. The other way to understand it is there's a resolve here with Thomas to die with Jesus in service to him. And honestly, I think there's a mixture of both in Thomas's statement. I, I do. I think there's a mixture of both. He likely sees this as a really 
pointless trip filled with far too much risk for the outcome. But if Jesus is going, so is he. For Thomas, he'd rather die with Jesus than live without him. Leon Morris says this, Thomas looked death in the faith and face and chose death with Jesus rather than life without him. We can imagine them all getting up, turning to leave. Jesus is probably excited. And the disciples are probably filled with dread. What are we doing? In their mind, they're going on a mission where the best case scenario is they actually come out alive. They had no idea. They were on their way to see a revelation of God in such a glorious way. They had no idea their faith was going to be changed forever. They had no idea they needed this experience in order for the book of Acts to happen. And they didn't know Jesus was preparing them for his death. And further still, they didn't know Jesus was preparing them for their death. And as Jesus turned towards Judea, you can picture them dropping in line behind him, fighting down fear, imagining the worst, but following Jesus nonetheless. And here we're challenged ourselves. Will we follow Jesus? Even through suffering. We sit here knowing how the story ends in John 11. We not only know Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, we know that Jesus will soon rise from the grave. He will rise from the grave to conquer death forever. He bids us to follow Him. He who went to the, to the grave for our sins and rose from the grave for our life. He calls us to follow Him. And He reminds us that whatever comes into our lives, it will not end in death, but for the glory of God and for our faith to grow. And all of that is surrounded by His intense love. And so with that perspective in mind, let's follow our Savior, even if it's on the dusty path to Judea. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. For we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have your word that instructs us in who you are and how we are saved and, and how we are to live. And we thank you that we have your word that deals honestly with suffering. For suffering is constant in our lives in one way, shape, or form. In all reality, we move from one suffering to another. And yet, if we walk with you and trust in you, we have the light and we don't have to stumble. 
we can live our lives in, through the suffering in such a way that your glory is revealed and our faith grows. And so, Father, would you do that in our lives? For those who are suffering right now and hurting right now, would you give them the perspective that they need, Lord? That you desire for your glory to be revealed in them. Who you are to be revealed in them. And you desire for them to grow in their faith, to love you more. That will result in loving others better. And Father, for those of us, for those in here who are, can't really point to being in a severe trial right now, be preparing hearts for when that comes. Father, we thank you for the perspective that you give us. We do not go through pointless suffering that leads to hopelessness, but rather we go through suffering that has purpose, that leads to glory. So may the cry of our heart be, this will not lead to death. May the cry of our heart be to live for your glory. May the cry of our heart be that we would grow more and more to be conformed into the image of Christ, for it's there that we will find peace and hope and joy. And Father, we praise you for your Son. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming for us. Lord, this chapter just shows how frustrating it must have been because these people in this chapter are the cream of the crop and they cannot understand what's going on. And you are so patient with them. It reminds us of how patient you are with us. So please keep us growing in you that we would walk in your ways and rest in your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.